I'm Tom DeSorcy. You've tuned in for compelling conversation on hot topics impacting Canada's fire service. This is Firefighting in Canada, the podcast. The fire world seems to get smaller all the time, yet... No matter where we're from, we all have the same thing in common, and that's service to the community and the people we work with every day. I met my guest recently at the Fire Rescue Canada conference in Halifax. Rashawn Fulcher is a consultant and coach, along with his role as a captain with the fire department in Sacramento, California. He joins us today from the Sunshine State. Rashawn, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. It's good to be here, Tom, and you are too kind, my friend. <laughs> Tell... <laughs> Tell me your story. I mean, it's actually quite fascinating. How did, let's go back. How did you find your way into the fire service or, or did the fire service find you? Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, we kind of found each other in a way, almost like, uh, I guess the reality of it all. She, the fire service was always there. I just wasn't paying attention and didn't have the normal, um, I guess, American childhood uh, love for the fire service that some young kids do. You know, I never, coming up as, you know, an African-American where I grew up, we didn't have fire engines that came by our neighborhood, didn't come by our schools. So like many kids like me, I didn't know the fire story. I didn't know um, the beautiful, amazing opportunities. I didn't know the history of the tradition. None of that was I introduced to at a very young age. So it was very foreign to me. But like I said, she was right underneath my nose the whole time. Because my best friend from like elementary school all the way to high school, his dad was a firefighter uh, for Oakland Fire. And I had no idea, you know, kids, you're young, you're not paying attention to how things are provided. You just pay attention to when they're there, when they're not there. So, and so I remember going all the way through high school, um, having no idea what his dad did. But I knew, there's one thing I knew, his dad drove a nice car, his house was in a nice neighborhood. He seemed like he was always at the games, like he was available, almost as if he didn't work. <laughs> and so after I graduated, I had a great college basketball career. And, you know, then a young man is met with reality. Like, OK, what are you, now you got to make a living. <laughs> and so then I started to inquire. I spent the time in corporate America and I loved our mission. But what I realized is I had I had a burning desire for camaraderie that at 21, I couldn't articulate it. And I didn't know necessarily what it was. I just knew it had been a part of my life since I was seven. And so at that age, I started to ask, hey, man, what did your dad do, buddy? He was like, oh, Pops was a firefighter. I was like, he was? Now, mind you, we had been around each other since we were five years old, and I have never known, never known. And so I went to his fire station in Rockbridge, California, and I fell in love. And after that, like all of us, I got the bug. I was in love. I was intoxicated. Uh, she was all I thought about and all I did. And then, you know, shortly after that, I got in, you know, I, I hunted it down and I got in the fire service. I took many tests like most people around the country. And by the grace of God, I landed in Sacramento. And, uh, I think for a lot of us back in those days, we didn't know pay contracts, uh, governmental structures. We just wanted to get a foot in the door and be a part of the group. And so, I was blessed to be a part of a great organization, great group, and there's so many different things I've learned. And so that's kind of my, you know, short little spiel of how I kind of got in. Like I said, she was underneath my nose the whole time. How many years for you now in the in the fire service then? 22, going on 22 years. So you, you know, 22 years ago when you when you got started, did you ever think that, 
you'd be sitting here and having a conversation like this today and going back, wow, I've been there 22 years. Is Was that in your mind when you first walked in the door? Tom, not at all. Not at all. Man, I, and that's why I start off saying God is good because there's so many things that I'm fortunate to have experienced, have seen, have been a part of that there's no way I could have scripted it or could have plotted my own journey. I mean, there's one thing I have done is I've always been a student of the game. I've always tried to give my best, but the 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 bountiful blessings that I have in my department, talking to you, being able to go to Canada, speak to other fire chiefs, th- there was no way I would have thought 20 years ago, this is what I'd be doing. A kid from East Oakland would be, you know, all the way across the world in Halifax speaking to fire chiefs, you know? So it just, I counted all joy, but I had no idea looking back 20 years ago. And you know, like I know, that is the beauty of the fire service. We have so many opportunities and because things change so fast and we're relied upon to solve so many different problems that you, your passion can take you wherever you want to go. What does Sacramento fire look like? I mean, you, you, you do tons of calls, probably a lot more than most of us in small volunteer fire departments in, in Canada. But what about the, the call volume, the type of calls that you guys that you guys go on? What's your days uh, like at the fire station? We have, you know, probably like most departments, stations that are busy as you want to be from 20 calls to 20 plus calls a day to stations that probably maybe somewhere, maybe a handful of calls a day. Our landscape is vast. We've got two rivers. We've got multiple airports. Um, we've got multiple highways and byways, a tra- railroad trains. We, 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 we have a lot that happens, obviously, and we're the capital city for the state of California. So we have a lot of political things going on. So we we have a very, very vast array of things. We have in our neighboring department, which is Sac City, they have high rises like any metropolis. We have large swaths of land out in the county. Um, so we cover a, a, a wide array of different challenging um, geographical and topical landscapes. When when did when did coaching and 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 you know public speaking and and that kind of leadership uh, uh, that kind of turn, if you will, when when did that become part of your life? Man, I have to say that probably started many many years ago, and it, it wasn't so much because of me. I had the fortune of being touched and coached by great people, and I say that with a lot of humility and sincerity. Because as I get older and I experience life more, I realize everybody hasn't had the opportunities that I've had. When I say opportunities, I mean to be mentored and be coached by some of the best in their field. And so when you ask me when did coaches start, I think coaches started for me as soon as I was able to listen. As soon as I was able to listen and realize, wow, the the nuggets I'm getting are very, very valuable and they're not common. And then the way I got them was very valuable and uncommon. And so when those things happened, I just noticed that, man, coaching is part of my destiny because of those that have coached me. And it's almost like, you know, we are in the fire service. You have those guys that, that have been poured so much into that if you asked them 20 years ago, you think you want to coach? They would have said, no, not at all. But when they realize the wealth of knowledge and experience they sit on, they also feel like they have an obligation to give it back. So that's where kind of coaching started for me. It started on probably a corporate level, maybe the last six years, where I kind of, I basically said, I got to stop sitting on a gift and actually give back more because I have a very unique perspective. And you, I think you understand, as a, as a minority and as a, in, 
a fire service in mind. I'm one of few. And then with 20 years experience, I've seen things in a certain way. They've landed a certain way and I'm able to communicate them back in a certain way that I feel an obligation to. And that's kind of what led me, you know, to speaking to fire chiefs in Canada, because I think I'm able to see things through a certain lens because of my lived experiences that is slightly different and gives me a different vantage point. And being in 20 plus years, it also gives me the vantage point of knowing I know where we're trying to go. Um, and I know how we can probably better get there based on things that are said. Very similar to a relationship. You and your spouse are arguing. Somebody who knows both of you on the outside can come in and say, Tom, I know you're trying to communicate this point, but do you know you're actually saying this and doing this? And so I think with 20 years experience uh, and lived experience, it gives me that vantage point. What would you, the coach, say 20 years ago to you, the firefighter? Would it be different than what you'd say to the fire crew today, the people on your on the job with you? Oh, yeah, probably would. Because when, when I was young, I was, you know, and I, we'll look at it this way from a retirement standpoint. And this was a defining moment in my career when I got injured. Um, and I was off work for 22 months rehabbing from a knee surgery. And and uh, I always call workers' comp an unwanted divorce. You know, <laughs> you love where you are, but you've been put on the back burner. You don't know if you're coming back. Um, and, and at that moment, I learned that when I was young and when I was a young captain, I was kind of go, 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 go. Let's just get to the finish line. And then I realized everybody comes to this profession or comes to the fire hall or the fire station, not because of the people that are there. They come there for people that aren't family, friends, wives, loved ones, parents. And so when I realized I'm pushing this thing, you know, all the way to its limits. And I had to step back and say, wait a minute, everybody that comes here wants to enjoy retirement. And we had this motto in the fire service years ago that everybody makes it home. And I always use this when I talk because I go, if you look at the evolution of the fire service as far as internal problems that we want to solve and the language we use, it speaks to our awareness. Everybody makes it home. That was a motto years ago, wellness. Okay, yes, yes, everybody makes it home. Nowadays, I think the motto is everybody makes it home, but let's make sure they make it home a certain way. And that's where we start talking about mental health. Because if I take your spouse or loved one from you for 30 years, but I send them home to you as a vegetable, what good is that? And see, we, we're just now starting to get to that mindset, I think, in the industry. We're like, cool, everybody makes it home. Yes, great. But how are they making home? Are we on the verge of suicide when they get home? I mean, because getting them back to me is great. But how did you get them back to me? And so to your question, what I would say is what I would tell the guys now that I wouldn't have said then is look to retirement and beyond. And I think that's a lot what the fire service is echoing now with cancer prevention, PFAs and turnouts. It's like, okay, not just making it back from the call, but how do we make it back? Are we as healthy as we can be? Are we are we getting the toxins off our body? Are we are we talking about the things we need to talk about before we take them home? So it's not just going home. It's how are we going to get there? And so that's what I would tell the folks now versus 20 years ago is like, just make it to retirement. Just get my 30 in. Now, you know, the older guys always tell you 30 plus 30, get 30 in and get 30 out. It's so, amazing how, how you compare, at least I compare, you know, sports, team sports to, to the fire service. And the fact that there's that camaraderie, that the coaching comes into play, the idea that, uh, you know, you want to, you want to, 
you want to be with the family. That's what draws you into the game a lot of times. But when you retire and leave the game, it's like leaving the family. And it doesn't have to be that way. I'm, I'm writing about that and saying it doesn't have to be as you retire. The family is still there. The family will always be there. Absolutely. And I we deal with that a lot in our first years too, where folks will retire. And the number one thing I hear them say is, because we're asked, you know, come on, this is the station. Well, I don't want to intrude. I didn't want to bother anybody. I didn't know if you all wanted me to come by. This is your station now. And I think that's one of our challenges is I know for us, we had a mass exodus of retirees. And I mean, when I looked at the number of years we lost in probably a year, we probably lost over a thousand years of experience. When you start adding folks that had 30 years, 30 years, 30 years, and they retired. And I'll be honest, we have not and did not do a good job of extracting that valuable information. Because you just imagine, I mean, if you look at a family like you said, or a sports team, if you imagine all of a sudden you woke up one night and all the grandparents were dead or gone, or all the senior and juniors were gone, what would that do to a family or an organization? And I don't think we as an industry have really looked at it. At least I know in America, United States, we haven't really looked at it that way. What would that do to the nucleus of the family or the team? And it happens all the time. And as an organization, we spend so much time recreating the same wheel, going through the same steps instead of extracting what was good and what was useful out of those employees for 30 years. I have a motto and I want your opinion on my motto. And you probably heard it before is that the best thing we can teach a young firefighter is how to become an old one. So true. It's so true. There's so, there's so much to this game in the fire service that is not taught in books. And, and you know, this, like, I know, I always say this thing. It's funny. When I first started, we would sit in the recliner. You look across, and a guy had 20 years, and this guy had 27, and that guy had 30. You were the only guy sitting there with, you know, maybe two years on. And it was an amazing feeling in that time. And you all felt lonely. Like, man, am I ever going to get there? But it was in those moments that you realize you're getting so much kind of through just being around them that when those pieces change, and now you're the old guy, and you look, and those are young guys, or there's... That exchange of information isn't happening. Some simple things like stuff they don't teach you about retirement. When you look at, okay, when is the right time to get out? And do you do this? Do you sell that back? Those things are only in the room when you have those senior folks that are still around. And like I said, we didn't do a good job of extracting that information. What is today's firefighter? What is this generation like coming in the door? compared to 20 years ago is are are you concerned with what's with what's showing up but i just had a conversation about this yesterday i you know I, to answer your question directly, yes concerned i don't know if i would say concerned might not be the word i would choose i would say more so excited about the challenge and i think what stops a lot of folks in this industry and they they probably land on words like concerned worried they're not the same is because we You've heard this, Mom. One thing firefighters hate is for things to change. One thing firefighters love is for things to stay the same. <laughs> so, so, so we, we as an industry have a hard time seeing value in things that are different. We just have a hard time. And I think a lot of it has to do with what I call a concept. We have flexibility fatigue. Like, I mean, when the bells go off, I got to be as flexible from seeing a kid on the street to a train derailment to a plane in the building. That's a wide range of flexibility we have to have that the normal person in day-to-day doesn't have to do. 
their office is probably going to look the same. Their work environment is going to be the same. So that requires us to have a lot of flexibility. But when we talk about in our stations and our halls, we're like my chair, my recliner, my bed, my TV, my spot. Our flexibility really reduces. And so I think that causes difficulty for us to find value and differences, especially when they're coming into our place of safety. And so I would say, you know, I'm encouraged by the challenge because if there's one thing the newer generation does is it challenges us to look in the mirror. It challenges us to say, is this the best way? Is this the only way? And am I the best one to do this? Those are all relevant questions for an organization that has to grow and needs to grow. And so I think that's why I say it challenges us to do that because it challenges us to fight against what I said in the beginning. We don't want things to stay the same, but damn it, we don't want things to change either. So it forces us into that avenue. And I think because we have to rely on the next generation to do the work we do, we're forced into that hopper of change. And I think it's, it's relevant, it's necessary, I think we have to kind of shift our lens on it, though, um, and understand. Because when I came in, probably like you, asking why was not something you did. You just did what you <laughs> And now this generation is like, well, why? Why? And the caveat to that, to what I said earlier, is it's funny because we talk about we want thinking firefighters. But our generation was, don't ask me why. Don't ask, just do what I'm saying. So we want the very thing we kind of resist in some ways. We just don't really, we're not so comfortable with how we're going to get it. You travel across America doing the, the, uh, the speaking, uh, the speaking gig. And, and of course now into Canada, uh, what have you picked up? What have you learned about the differences in the fire services in a, in, in America? And when it compares to Canada, for example, I, I think it's different. Uh, do you agree? Yes, there are, there are differences. And I think, I think the differences are basically how we've adapted to solve challenges and stressful situations. And I think that's, I think that is inherent to any place you go. And, and you look at a family organization, depending on the nucleus of the family, the cultural aspects, how they're going to deal with an emergency is going to be a slightly different than how you do it, just because of the stress causes you and pushes you down one avenue. So I totally agree. As do I travel, there's different ways we deal with emergencies. One funny thing is, I noticed over in Canada, your code three is like our code. We, I mean, we don't, but code zero, like when we go lights and sirens, it's code three. I think in Canada, it's code one, right? No, it's code three. Okay. Well, it depends so, where you are, but it is code three. Yeah. And so I think in Halifax, it was like a code one or it was different because <laughs> the chief owner was telling me different. So little things like that. But I think we're more similar than we're different in regards to the human aspect. I mean, everybody is passionate about helping people. Everybody takes pride and, and what they're a steward of, the tradition of the fire service, their community, their culture, whether it's their hall, whether it's their station. Everybody has an overwhelming sense of pride, loyalty to it. So I think we're very similar in the tangible things that make us great at what we do. I think how we apply it, the application is slightly different, um, but we all get the job. And I think at the end of the day, I think that's what really makes us unique and similar is that we're going to get it done by hell or high water. We're going to make it happen. It's just the avenues we take differently to get it done. Like I know for you, you're in a volunteer place. So how you get people to the call is different than how we get them there. But the end goal, we got to get them there. And it may be a delay. It may be this. It may be that. 
but it, it all happens. The end user still is receiving the service, no matter how or where that service is delivered. Now, very quickly, what is what's your next thirty? What's what's your next? What's the future horizon after the fire service? Uh, continuing the uh, the tour? Yes, I, I you know like I talked earlier about the perspective and the vantage point. My thing is I live by a premise that says to whom much is given, much is required. And so for me, like I said, I think the, the the vantage point that I have being who I am and where I am gives me a lot of insight into how to possibly say something or do something different to get the effect that we want from our people and our teammates. And so I think for me, it's just going around the next 30 and sharing that perspective. So when I die, I feel like I've died empty of all the things people that I was blessed to have people put into me. I don't want, I don't want to die and go, oh, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have shared that perspective. I wish I would have helped out there. Um, because like I said, I think I'm fortunate. I know I am to be who I am in the career I am and where I'm at. Um, and so I want to share it. I want to share it. Rashawn, been a pleasure. I uh, appreciate you doing this today. Thank you so much, my friend. I got to get back up there. Thank you for joining Firefighting in Canada, the podcast. For more episodes, visit firefightingincanada.com.